The great author Mark Twain was once having a heated argument with one of his friends who was a Mormon, and they were arguing about the issue of polygamy. And the Mormon was arguing that uh, a man having multiple wives, polygamy was permitted in the Bible. And so he and Twain were going back and forth, and the man was citing examples of patriarchs and kings who had several wives. And he challenged Twain. He said, he said, I bet you can't even find a single verse in the Bible that condemns polygamy. And Twain said, I certainly can. When Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Now, that is what Jesus says in the gospel. He's not talking, though, about a man serving more than one wife. He is talking about God and mammon, right? He says you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You will hate the one and despise the other. And we see, if you've been paying attention uh, in our gospel readings um, for this liturgical year, this is the year of the gospel of Luke, and that Luke, more than any of the other evangelists, transmits the most information about what Jesus said regarding wealth and its dangers, its spiritual dangers, and its proper use. Right? And so we've been seeing this in other parts of Luke's Gospel, and, of, and Jesus, in many ways, is continuing a tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament. So in our first reading, we heard from the prophet Amos. And Amos is preaching against those wealthy people in Israel. Um, these wealthy merchants, these, uh, they're, they're cheating people, they're fixing the scales, they, they oppress the poor. They can hardly wait for the uh, religious feasts and the times of Sabbath rest to be over so they can get back to their, their dirty business. And Jesus tells a very strange story about what we call the unjust or dishonest steward. So, so there's a rich man who has someone else who's kind of running his business, um, making loans and collecting on the loans. And this man apparently is not doing a good job. So he's told by his master that he is going to be fired. And he begins to panic because he doesn't know what he'll do for income after he's fired. He says, you know, I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't do manual labor of the common man. I'm too proud to beg. And then he comes up with an idea. And so we see him calling in his master's debtors one by one and reducing the amount of their debt. Okay? And this is something that he had the authority, legal authority to do. And we often know even now, you know, sometimes you may be in debt to a credit card company. They may um, uh, give your debt to collectors and they may just decide, you know, you can't pay it all back or it's not worth it. And so they write down your debt. Okay, but of course, in doing so, he's making the, the master less wealthy. Um, why is he doing it? Because he believes that these debtors of his master, that when he does this kindness for them, after he's been fired, they will do a kindness to him. He's, that they will take him into their homes. Right? And so clever it, it, is it that his master actually has to praise him. He basically says, that was a pretty good play. You know, I got to give you, I got to give you props for that. Okay. Jesus says, of the lesson of that parable, he says, make friends for yourselves with dishonest wealth so that when it fails, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What does he mean about dishonest wealth and how do we make friends with it? He's referring to money. And the friends he's referring to 
are those in need. So that is using our money to help the poor. This is actually a concept that is we find in the Old Testament as well. How doing that benefits us in the next world. Right? When does dishonest wealth fail us? When we die. We can't take it with us. Right? So in the book of Tobit, we read this. For almsgiving delivers from death and keeps you from entering darkness. Gary Anderson has written about this theme in Judaism and in early Christianity. This theme of giving to the poor as, in a sense, making a deposit into a heavenly bank account, which offsets the debt of our sin. So maybe you've heard of the practice of indulgences, which, by the way, is still something that the church approves. And the idea is that there's a, a, a worthy act of prayer or of sacrifice or of almsgiving now this is the key, you're supposed to do it in faith and with love, that reduces the punishment, the temporal punishment due to our sins. It's not an um, invention of the Middle Ages, but it actually goes back deep into the Bible. So about seven years ago or so, um, a partner at the law firm I used to work at, his name is Jim, he told me that he was retiring early and that he had always wanted to spend more of his time, more of his money to help the poor. And in particular, maybe to help a Catholic school in the inner city. Um, and so I connected him with St. Rita's School in Southeast San Diego, as well as with another acquaintance of mine, a man named Fred, who had made money in investing, and he had been retired longer than Jim, and he had actually been a huge philanthropist. And so the two of them got together, they got involved in St. Rita's School between the, their own donations and, and their contacts and their friends, they raised $5 million for St. Rita's. In fact, they were acknowledged uh, a few months ago at a banquet for, um, from the Office for Catholic Schools. Um, I know many of our parishioners here who are from the Philippines who basically run personal charities for people back at home, whether it be for orphans or to, or to build a church in a poor part of town. Uh, and it's it just, uh, it, I'm so impressed with that and, and the devotion that many of our parishioners have for that. Recently, I received uh, an email along with other pastors from Interfaith Community Services, and they are a kind of a full-service social service provider in Escondido, which is supported by local faith communities, um, Catholic, Christian, and others. And they had an urgent need, because they feed a lot, of the, a lot of homeless, of meals, ready, meals that were ready to eat. So I emailed one of, one of our go-to parishioners, and she got a bunch of her friends together, and within a day, they had like over, you know, 100-something meals delivered there, right? So all these, they're wonderful examples. These, this, is, this is the good use of our dishonest wealth, right? Now, of course, the people I'm talking about, they do it for love and out of compassion. But Jesus does not hesitate to speak of how this use of our wealth will be rewarded. He doesn't hesitate to speak about it, Right? Remember even in Matthew's Gospel, when at the last judgment, though the righteous which will, which will go, go to the Father, uh, they, will, they will have been judged on how they helped, right, the least of Jesus' brethren, um, how they responded, that Jesus receives it as done to himself. And in the parable that Jesus tells today, he's adding another element to it. Basically, basically what he's saying is, in the kingdom of God, the poor, the poor people are the ones with status. The poor people are the ones that have pull. So by helping them, you have essentially these benefactors that will welcome you 
into eternal dwellings. There is also a more general lesson from today's gospel. When Jesus says this, he says, for the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Prudence means practical wisdom. How are business people prudent? Well, they, they set goals. They prioritize those goals. They study best business practices and models. They develop a plan. They implement the plan, and they follow through, and they're constantly assessing, is this working, is this not working? They're constantly making an accounting of whether the things that are being done are achieving the intended results. That's how people succeed in business. So why is it that so few Christians have this approach to living out their faith? For many of us, we just, you know, we go to maybe, we go weekly to Mass, we maybe pray a little here and there when we feel like it, we do some charitable, work, some charitable work here and there when we feel like it. Right? But these things are often, in the life of a Christian, are unconnected and sporadic. Whatever goals we have are usually vague intentions, like, I should be doing something more. But that's not the way that the children of this world conduct their business. And Jesus is saying we need to learn from them. Right? Oftentimes, business people, they put their business plan in writing. Perhaps we should do the same. Perhaps after some time of prayer and reflection, we should write down our goals for our prayer life, for helping our family become more unified and God-centered, for being involved in the parish mission, for leading others to Christ, for growing in virtue and remedying our defects of character. How many of us are aware of what the virtues are, what the vices are, and are examining our daily lives according to these and coming up with ways of growing in virtue and, uh, and, and having less vice. Now, some of you, for, this will sound very familiar because some of you have went through our discipleship program. We're hoping to start a new group of, uh, a new um, set of discipleship groups in a couple months. But basically, you learn in those groups the eight habits of a missionary disciple. And you learn different options, different ways that you can practice these habits and grow in these habits. And by the end of the time, you start practicing them. By the end of the time, you have to have a written plan, your personal discipleship plan. We are servants of a wonderful and generous master. And nothing and no one else is worthy of our ultimate concern. We should carry out the work that God has entrusted to us with purpose and forethought. The salary isn't always what we would like, but the retirement benefits are out of this world. 